Welcome back to Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with someone that I greatly value and appreciate on the planet. His name is Dr. Angus Fletcher. Angus Fletcher is a professor of story science at Ohio State's Project Narrative, the world's leading academic think tank for the study of stories. He has dual degrees in neuroscience and literature, received his PhD from Yale, taught Shakespeare at Stanford, and has published two books and dozens of peer-reviewed academic articles on scientific workings of novels, poetry, film, and theater. His research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, Mellon Foundation, and a lot of other important stuff. I'm not going to read his whole entire bio, but he's been featured all over the place. Disney, Sony, BBC, Amazon, PBS. He's legit. And his mind is uh, a gift to this planet. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation, the way that stories are influential in not just entertainment, but also the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives, about who we are, about our families and our purpose and place in the world and how that spills out into our constitution, our physiological makeup, our structural makeup. It's freaking interesting. Uh, I want to thank you guys for leaving us reviews on wherever you listen to this. So if you're on your phone or whatever, scroll down, tap the old subscribe button so you get each week's episode and drop us a five-star review if you think this program deserves it. I'm going to read a review from, let's just pull one up here. This is from Miss Franz. Miss Franz says, informative and enjoyable podcast. Love this podcast. Aaron is the real deal. He adds perspective without making it all about him. He's honest, vulnerable, and open-minded. Offers a well-rounded variety of guests. Thanks so much, Miss Franz. Um, appreciate you guys tuning in. Appreciate you sharing this. I appreciate you implementing these concepts into your world. If you find them valuable, let's get to it with my guy, Dr. Angus Fletcher. Can you give it like a brief overview of your background and what particularly brought you into engaging with the, the power of, of story? Because I think it's such an, an amazing tool and topic, but can you just give like a general sense of, of how did that happen? Yeah. So, I mean, I basically, I started out in neuroscience and I was basically just asking all these questions about the brain that nobody else was really asking. I mean, at the time, everyone was just really convinced that the human brain was this kind of logical decision maker and that like emotion was this misfire in the brain and all this kind of stuff. And I was just really interested in creativity and empathy and courage and all these things. And I was like, where do these come from in the brain and how are they working and how are they operating? And I just thought to myself, well, the way to understand it is by understanding art, because art is the source of so much creativity and so much emotion. And so I went to basically study Shakespeare. And that was when I started to realize that actually a lot of the driving force of the human brain is story. Story isn't just a mode of communication. It's a way that our brain works. It's actually the way that we think. And, you know, after I studied Shakespeare, that was at Yale. Then I went off to Stanford and met a bunch of people at Pixar. And then I kind of went on this kind of circuitous journey where I just got more and more and more into how actually story works and how the more you understand about how story works, the more you understand how the human brain works. And then the more you can kind of get out of your own head. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect between the, the, like the magic of life, you know, like the symphony of, of being a human being and the reductionist materialistic kind of conceptualization of science and like the religion around science. And we fit our perception of ourselves into that lens. And I think if, if that's exclusively the lens that we perceive ourselves and life through, then there's, there's inherently going to be a limitation there, but it's kind of gets blurry and weird to start to interject that. Like, I don't know, you call it story. I would call it magic or, you know, but like the symphony part and the integration and, and, you know, that's where I think it gets kind of blurry. So is that, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, my sort of hero in terms of quote unquote science is really William James. And William James founded this thing called pragmatism, but he also wrote this wonderful book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And he was famous in his day, both for being a professor at Harvard of psychology, but also hanging out with spiritualists and, you know, sort of questing. I mean, he believed in telepathy. And, you know, I, I think really life is just an enormous mystery. And a huge part of that mystery is just ourselves. And I think the moment we start thinking we have figured out the mystery or that it's simpler 
than it really is, is the moment that we not only kind of lose our own way, but lose the magic. And so, you know, for me, the reason I like science is because I think that if you want to find, you know, the true belief, you want to break idols, you want to break false idols, you know, and the world I think is full of false, easy explanations for why our brain and why our society works the way that it does. And science is a great tool for smashing some of those and saying they don't work, but that doesn't actually get you any closer to explaining the mystery. If anything, it really just deepens the mystery and your respect for the mystery and, you know, for the intuition and the imagination and all the other kind of powers we have within that kind of help connect us to those uh, deeper, bigger things. I wonder, what do you th think the effect on a culture or an individual that exclusively has, perceives the world through the lens of science compared to someone that's, you know, so, open to the, un the unprovable, perhaps, or the, the, the hasn't been proven yet? Sure. So I would say, I mean, so I might make a distinction between two types of science, and you can push back on me here if you think this is ridiculous. But I think, you know, there's one kind of science which we get from the Enlightenments, which is basically the science of logic and reduction, which is, I think, what you're talking about, and which is basically this attempt to disenchant the world and reduce everything to logical operating procedures. And this is the view of science that leads ultimately to this idea that we want to build a giant computer it's going to upload us all into this computer and we're going to have this singularity and this kind of like machine future. It's all going to be amazing because we're going to living inside this computer. And that to me, I mean, I've written a lot about why I think AI is largely a hoax, why I think a lot of the money we're throwing into computers is a complete waste of time. And not only that, it's destructive to humans. I mean, I think we're actually building a world right now, which is breaking humans because we're so obsessed with logic. We're so obsessed with metrics and turning everything into data points. And we have kids going through school and they're all being quantified and they're being told they have to pick the right answer on this multiple choice exam. And we just know it's just kind of destroying their hope, their happiness. Um, it's, we're just kind of creating this kind of lost, sad generation. The other kind of science, and you can push back on me this if you want, but the other kind of science to me, which is, which is real science, is basically the thing that was invented on the stage. And that science is the science of experiment and exploring and being open to things that are bigger than yourself. I mean, uh, that's the kind of uh, the science in which you want to kind of look out at the universe, not to master or control the universe, but to drink in the universe. I mean, that's the kind of science that leads us to build telescopes, not so that we can know the heavens, but so that we can kind of blow our minds <laughs> with, with how much more spectacular they actually are. So, you know, just because I am a scientist, I, I think of it in terms of those two types of science, but I agree with you that that second type of science might blur in moments into kind of mysticism and the immaterial. And certainly it's very much an agnostic science in that a scientist should never ever presume to say <laughs> that something in science is absolute and true. It's all just a kind of ongoing exploration and experiment. Yeah, it seems like, yeah, when I say science, I'm exclusively referring to, you know, maybe like Newtonian, you know, reductionistic, mechanistic science, you know, so, so that it feels for me like perhaps in a way we have been preparing ourselves or culture has been preparing itself to create or be open and available to, for, to the idea of transitioning into like the metaverse for example, where a lot of people are like, that sounds amazing, like screw my life, you know? And it seems like, I think if you suggested that to people you know, 40 years ago or, you know, a thousand years ago, they'd be like 0%, like I'm all, I'm all biology, baby, you know? But it seems like we've slowly, gradually been transitioning to a place of like, yeah, I get that. You know, like I could, I could just, you know, convert myself into ones and zeros. Do you, do you what do you think about that? <laughs> Well, I mean, I agree with you, and I think it's terrifying. I mean, I think I think basically what's happened is meta and all this kind of stuff has created the conditions under which it actually seems like a good idea, because basically what meta has done is it has destroyed so much of our humanity through this sort of this social media nihilism, where basically we're all going around acting as though we're having genuine interactions with people by basically just kind of posting pixels all over the place. And we become more and more lost and alienated and alone. And then we start to think, yes, I do need something bigger to save myself. And then, of course, Meta's like, well, I have that thing. And so in a way, it's sort of it's like ripped out our humanity. And then having ripped out our humanity, it's pretending to save us by giving us more of the same sort of, you know, alien machinery. And, you know, to your point, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, life was certainly more human <laughs> before we became completely obsessed with this idea of optimization and efficiency 
and all these other ways that we have of turning ourselves into machines. We're not supposed to be machines. We're supposed to be growing life things. You know, I mean, I mean, if you look out, if you look out at a plant, a plant is not a series of nuts and bolts. A plant is an attempt to grow towards the light. And a heart is not a series of nuts and bolts. A heart is something that grows through challenge. So to me, it's about growth as opposed to efficiency. I wonder your perception. It seems like we kind of have two stories running, most of us. You know, maybe, well, we probably have lots of stories running, but there's the technological story and your social media story and like that kind of avatar that people invest a ton of energy into. And then there's, you know, the reality, the IRL story of who you, you know, who you actually are. And then maybe there's like the observer story of yourself. So there's your thoughts. And then there's the observer of the thoughts, wherever, whatever that is. So it's kind of like, it feels like we're, we're juggling like these, these various different narratives. Does that make sense? This is just like some wily. Yeah. And I think it's brilliant. And I think it's completely true. I mean, I think the key to happiness, and, and you should tell me, because I mean, I can tell just from looking at you, you found a lot of happiness in your life. I mean, I think the key to happiness is to find the story that comes from you and that grows with you and that allows you to grow the lives around you. And it's an organic process that starts really deep in the heart in terms of what you want, what you love. It's a story that breaks through fear, breaks through anxiety. It's a story that embraces hard times with gratitude because it knows that it gets stronger by being tested. And it's not a story that's trying to present itself to somebody else as something other than it is. I mean, I think a lot of the problem that I have with social media and these kinds of things is a lot of it's really just kind of self-marketing. It's like us telling a story to the world that we think the world will like better than our actual self. And the key to life is to be comfortable with yourself, to own yourself. If there's parts of yourself that you're uncomfortable with, either work through them and change them, or say, you know what, I'm not bad, I'm okay like this. And then once you start to own that self, start to say, where's it gonna take me? What's my journey? What's my narrative? What's my story? And go on that story with other like-minded stories. So that to me is really the key uh, to life, um, is to find that one core story and not to spend quite so much time marketing ourselves to everyone else. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea. I think that, I mean, this is, I think is obvious, especially to you or anybody that's just paying attention, but language is immensely powerful for kind of containing our stories, you know? And, and so as we speak, you know, it's like that the, the, the Bible, I don't know, was, I think first was the word, you know, it's like the, everything comes from the word. And as we say things like, oh, I want to be optimized, you know, or, you know, efficient and all those concepts, those are, those are very, that's like computer language. And you really want your computer system to, to be all of those things. But sometimes, I think is a, a highly variable, biological, complex system, you know, called human, sometimes having uh, variety in the sense of, you know, going and taking a walk to the post office to mail a handwritten letter. There's so much health packed into that experience. And then someone receives that letter and it's like, wow, like they wrote a letter to me. So inefficient. But it, cre it, it, it creates this emotive sensation on the other side. And you gathered sunlight and you locomoted yourself. And, you know, it, it's like, it's like, huh, wildly inefficient, brilliantly healthy. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, just in the case of your letter example, first of all, there's an act of love there because you made the effort to write that letter. And it actually takes a lot more thought to write a letter by hand than just to type an email because you actually have to think about every word before you put it on the page because you don't get a chance to rewrite them. You know, you can't just kind of splatter out your thoughts and then kind of have the computer fix them for you. You know, you have to think, you have to craft every sentence. You have to decide, you know, which envelope I'm going to put this in. You have to walk, you know, and so it's a real effort. And so it's, it's, it's a sign of love. It's a sign of caring. It's a sign of, you know, this matters to me to do this as opposed to I took five seconds to shoot you a text. And so all those ways in which we show our kind of our, our, our caring to other people, I, I think are tremendously important. The sun, I mean, you know, being outside in nature, this thing that birthed us, this thing that is part of us, I mean, as opposed to kind of worshiping our own tiny creations where, you know, we surround ourselves with screens and we say, oh, look, I'm so amazing. I've created these things. I mean, go look at a mountain, go look at a mountain, go look at the sky, go look at the rivers, go look at the lakes, you know, go look at the kind of bigness that has birthed us. And I just find it odd 
that we spend so much time worshiping computers nowadays. I mean, it would, it would be as if, you know, we, we were worshiping typewriters or, you know, worshiping combustion engines. I mean, you know, typewriters are a great thing. Combustion engines are a great thing. I don't worship them. I don't want to be a piston. I don't know why so many people want to be computers. It's just a tool that we invented to do stuff. It's not something magical. I mean, the real magic is in life because life is such an illogical thing. I mean, everything about life is illogical. It's illogical that life would be here, that life would strive, that life would struggle. And, you know, unlike computers, which are driven by logic, which, you know, makes total sense, human life is driven by struggle, by the fact that each of us has two hearts inside of us. I mean, there, every one of us wants two different things. We're at least two people inside ourselves. You know, we want this thing, we want that thing. We have to struggle together, you know, with those two different things. And so everything about life in its root is, is illogical and non-computational. And I do just find it baffling that we have sort of got ourselves to a place where we've created this very simple quite stupid thing in artificial intelligence that we are now worshiping. Where do you think that's going to go? Do you think it's going to be a big flop where people are kind of get to a point where they're like, oh, I'm not as into that as I thought I was going to be? Do you think it's, I think it's, it's interesting if you, if you look back whenever, whatever, how many, however many decades ago it was that people believed by the year 2000, we were going to be flying around in cars. And we have this perception that the future oftentimes is more grandiose than it is than it actually is. And you, you, you arrive in the future, it's like, well, not that much has changed outside of, you know, planes go a little faster and we have access to all the information on the planet inside of our pocket. But like the day-to-day -day existence, it's like, well, style's a little different. You know, like, what do you, where do you think we're going with the, the, the metaverse? Yeah, so first of all, I do think it's gonna be a flop. I mean, AI, people seem to forget, AI is constantly having these cycles where everyone gets really excited about it and then it just totally sure. bombs and doesn't go anywhere. And there's no way, there's nowhere for AI to go. It is too stupid. Its method doesn't work. Its epistemology is fundamentally broken. I mean, all the data in the world can only predict the way the world was yesterday. I mean, this is a fundamental problem with data. And whereas the human brain has the ability to create and imagine tomorrow, a tomorrow that is never there, that was never there before. You don't need data to create tomorrow. Um, because you can imagine what isn't there. So AI is always going to break. AI is, 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 is always never going to work. But, you know, the problem is that people are looking to AI because they haven't found a sustainable answer within themselves. And this is the yeah. why people are always looking to easy answers in their lives. You know, there's always an easy answer. Oh, it's computers going to fix me or this ideology is going to fix me, you know, or if I just did that, it's going to fix me. And people are always kind of turning away from the hard work, which is themselves. Because, you know, we have to kind of look at ourselves and say, well, there's a reason I'm unhappy or there's a reason I'm dissatisfied or there's a reason that I want more in my life. And that reason is me. And I have to look at myself and work through the conflict and contradiction in myself and kind of do that work. And then when I do that, I will be happy, or at least I'll be as happy as I can be. And I can pass through war and nightmare at peace because, you know, wherever I go, there will be the peace that I have created in myself. So I do think AI will break, but I don't think it breaking is going to save us. I think what's ultimately going to save us is, is us kind of starting to have the courage to look at ourselves and, uh, you know, figure out what to do with ourselves. I want to share about something that has absolutely knocked my socks off. That is imbibing ketone esters, particularly ketone IQ. So ketone bodies are these things that we create when we push ourselves to our metabolic limits. They are essentially nature's super fuel and they feel fantastic. If you've ever been in a place where you've fasted for an extended period of time, you start to have this really amazing, brilliant clarity, these really high levels of energy. You just feel very light. You feel very yourself. You feel very clear. And I was immensely surprised that just by taking a few servings of Ketone IQ, I really did experience similar sensations of an extended fast, sensation of mental clarity, focus, and also really excellent sustained energy. So really good for going for a run or training or something of the sort. And that is why HVMN has an active $6 million contract with the U.S. Special Operations Command, because this stuff works. Per mention, I'm a convert. I'm a believer. I think this stuff is very interesting. I really enjoy it. I think you will like it as well. And you can get yourself a 20% discount by going to Ketone dash iq.com and use promo code align 20 that's ketone k-e-t-o-n-e dash iq.com and use promo code align 20 for a 20 percent discount if you do not love this you can get your money back you've got nothing to lose i think this is absolutely worth 
investigating and uh, just seeing what your experience is. My experience was much more impressive than I was anticipating. So I hope you guys enjoy it. That's it. That's all. Wanted to share something that I have been loving for the last, it's been a very long time since I moved to Hawaii when I was 18 years old, I discovered this stuff called kava. They have kava bars all over there. They're very popular in the South Pacific Islands and it is amazing stuff. It's incredible for downregulation of your nervous system, calming yourself down, reduction of anxiety, insomnia relief. I'm just gonna read a list of some of the things it's really good for. Deeper and more restorative sleep, boosting mood and sociability, enhancing mental focus and creativity. It has anti-inflammatory inflammatory effects, ton of stuff. When you are drinking kava, it's an incredible way to connect with those around you. It's a great replacement for alcohol, I would say a million percent. And I really love the stuff. I particularly value the kava from True Kava. And we also have a 15% discount for listeners out there. So all you gotta do to get the 15% discount and try kava for yourself is go to gettruekava.com slash discount slash align 15. So that's spelled get true kava g-e-t-t-r-u-k-a-v-a.com slash discount slash align 15. I think this stuff is just fantastic. It doesn't have any kind of hangover effects and it is one of my favorite tools for hanging out with friends, for people I care about, sharing some kava and uh, just going deeper in conversations, feeling fun, feeling amicable, feeling euphoric. And I think you guys are going to dig it. So jump over to gettruekava.com slash discount slash Align15. You could also just use the Align15 code at checkout for 15% off. I would imagine, I agree with all that. And I would uh, imagine that we can see an aspect of ourselves within AI because it's an expression of human. You know, so I, I, would, I would presume if you look into AI enough and there's probably like some, some dirt, some like nerd, nerd folk out there that are like, yes, you know, like if you go into it, the ones and zeros enough and, you know, the algorithms and all that, you're like, ah, oh, this is, I, this is, this is a reflection of human because it is human. Yes, it is a part. So, I mean, I don't know how nerdy we want to get here, but basically there's just a lot of different types of intelligence in the human brain. And one of those types of intelligence is logic, which is why human beings can do math. I mean, all of us are capable of doing at least basic math, you know, one plus one is two and that kind of thing, you know? And computers just kind of take that part of the human brain and just launch it forward. But I mean, it would basically be sort of the equivalent if, you know, you went to, you know, a, a beautiful forest or something, you know, that was rich and diverse and had many different ways of living and just took one aspect of that and just made it everything. So all of a sudden the entire forest just became one giant pine trunk or something, you know what I mean? And you wouldn't think that was a forest anymore. You would think that it was one thing that was beautiful in its place and in its balance with the rest of nature that had suddenly taken over everything in nature. And a lot of times you will see these kind of invasive species where one thing will suddenly just kind of take over and just control everything. And that's kind of what's happened with AI. It's taken one thing, which is a small part of our brain and an important part of our brain. And it's told us this is everything. Um, like if you opened a Crayola box and suddenly every color was red and you were mm. like, okay, I like red, but you know, I also like blue and I like green and I like everything else too. It's like, it's like an evasive species in a way. If it was a tree, it's yes. like, it could be like a vine that's it, wrapping it, the tree and closing out the light and the life. And eventually the tree can sustain it for so long, but you know, eventually it consumes the tree and then it just becomes the, the new species. Yeah. Or actually it probably just dies because having killed everything else, it has no purpose. Well, that's not true. It, it won't, it won't, it won't, it won't, it won't kill the tree. It will just, it will just deprive the tree of enough life force to keep the tree sustaining. But if it kills it, then it kills itself. So, so, so I retract my previous statement, but that's it cunning. sucks. It sucks the tree. That's cunning. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's the ultimate intelligent parasite, which just kind of keeps its host on the verge of dying, but never actually kills it. Really so funny. where did it come from? Because yeah. it came from it came from human, obviously. Or where did humans come from? I mean, there's there's theories that say that humans came from from outer space and you know mushrooms, dolphins. There's who knows, <laughs> you know. Um, but we, yeah, so I mean, where, so if it, if it goes, is, that, I mean, yeah, you know, run, running that analogy, if that analogy is fine, because I like it as an analogy. But does it you know, does it hold up as far as like what are the the origins of technology? And we can kind of pull it back to something that's more a little more pragmatic and actionable. But is there anywhere to go with that? Yeah, I mean, if you want, I can give you the quick science. I mean, it's not Please. too complicated. I mean, basically, yeah. 
So basically 500 million years ago, we think the kind of beginning parts of the brain evolved, and those were neurons, and there were kind of two different kinds of neurons. There was one neuron that was kind of known as the motor neuron that existed to kind of do, to act, kind of control muscles. And then there was another kind of neuron which existed to kind of process information from an eye, sort of sensory information. And that information from the eye came in through as symbols, as representations. And that second type of neuron ended up becoming both the kind of visual cortex and the logic centers of the human brain. While the first kind of neuron, the motor neuron, became the parts of the brain that allow us to move our body, to feel, to make art, to do pretty much anything other than see visually. So the visual neurons, the kind of symbolic logic neurons, their function was pinpointed in about 350 BC by a guy called Aristotle, who wrote a book called the uh, Organon, which laid out the three rules of logic, which are and, or, and not. And basically that book sat around for a while. It was then rediscovered in the Middle Ages and became the basis of medieval science. It was overthrown in the Renaissance, but then it was rediscovered in the early 20th century by people like Claude Shannon and Alan Turing. And they realized that you could take Aristotle's three rules of logic and automate them in a machine through logic gates. And those three rules of logic are the only rules that a computer knows. Um, they've actually been simplified from NAND, from AND or NOT to NAND NOR. So there's actually just two logic gates in the computer brain. And all that AI thinks is those two logical functions. Um, so you can trace it all the way from the beginning of the kind of human visual cortex all the way through to AI, but you can also see how it just neglects this other huge part of the human brain, which involves everything we do with our body, everything that's movement, physical, emotion, you know, hands, arms, limbs, mouth, anything. So that's both how it is, both kind of a part of the human brain on steroids, but also just a very small part of the human brain. Yeah, I think it's in relation to the stories that we tell ourselves, it's interesting going back into history, you could see, for example, in, in art, like ancient Chinese art, Confucian art or inspired art or Taoist inspired art, there is uh, the, the subject, the human isn't in like the, the focal point as much. You know, the, the human is interwoven throughout nature. And so the, you know, the, the, the creator of that art sees the world through this lens of, of interconnection. Ah, the human's consistent with the nature. And then, you know, flash to now, social media and you know the, the art of the day uh, there's much a much stronger focal point on on the self like the selfie is a new concept you know and and it seems it yeah, seems no, in my mind exactly. almost almost like almost like culturally we're going through similar developmental patterns of a child and at one point you you were inseparable from nature you know there's no separation between you and mom and then theory of mind starts to develop and then eventually you become maybe a little bit of a like a pain in the ass because you start to learn to be selfish and you start to learn to really focus on you and the whole world revolves around you. And it seems like there's probably some type of natural organic arc that, that perhaps we're on right now. I think that's really brilliant. And, and I totally agree with your, your, your point there that, that basically, if you look at ancient art, absolutely humans are not at all the focus. We're just a character in a larger play, in a larger drama that's unfolding. Yeah. And then you get to, to modern art and it's all about us and you know, kind of how important we are. And I also agree that in terms of childhood development, so much of being a child is not even having a consciousness of yourself at the beginning and just thinking of yourself as continuous with the world and then slowly developing this awareness of, of, of yourself as distinct. But, you know, of course, there is this future thing that we can kind of develop into, which is, you know, becoming aware of other selves as selves and as autonomous things that can bring us value by listening to them and valuing them and trying to find shared stories and shared narratives that we can tell together. So we don't just have to stop with realizing that we're a self and then deciding, OK, this is the end of, of our story. We can kind of put ourselves back together. There's a... Uh, there's this kind of wonderful, I don't know if you've read uh, any, any of Hegel, you know, he's this kind of like wacky 19th century uh, German philosopher, but he has this kind of like fascinating metaphor in his mind for how kind of creation works. And he thought of this as a kind of, there was a kind of God at the beginning, who was sort of like a light bulb. And, you know, all the rays of lights went out from the bulb. And those were all the kind of individual selves. And they felt really powerful in themselves, you know, because there were these zooming rays of light. But then at some point they started to feel lonely. And they started to think, there's got to be more than just me 
There's got to be something bigger than me, somewhere that I came from and somewhere that I'm going to. And so what those rays of light did is they started to turn around and go back to seek their source. And as they turned around and went back to seek their source, all of a sudden, all these thousands of rays of light started to converge. And as they converged, they started to collide and hit each other. And there was this moment where they're like, oh, these other rays of light out there, they're hitting me. I don't know how I feel about this. But gradually, through those collisions, those different selves grew because the rays of light fused and became something bigger and bigger and bigger until finally they got all the way back to their point of origin and they became everything all over again. And whether or not you believe Hegel and whether or not you believe that metaphor um, for life, I do think there's something beautiful in the idea that we do journey out alone, but at some point we become conscious that we need more than just ourselves. And so we turn back from ourselves and in turning back from ourselves, we collide with other people. And in those collisions, we become something bigger. So that to me is the kind of final stage that I think hopefully we'll get beyond the selfie to this kind of, you know, bigger light bulb at the center that Hegel saw. What do you, what happens if we don't get beyond the selfie? Well, I mean, this is sort of a fascinating question because, I mean, on a certain level, I mean, nothing happens in the sense that, that uh, um, you know, we just kind of stay there and that's our personal <laughs> private tragedy. And then at some point it ends, you know, and to me, it, it's, it's more about the fact that there's a lost opportunity to go more. So I don't think I don't I'm not one of these people who thinks about life as though somehow, you know, because things aren't perfect now, it's terrible and it's a disaster. And if we don't fix things, it's all going to be a tragedy. I'm one of those people who thinks there's just more opportunity out there. There's just something better we could have. So rather than getting bummed out about the fact that it's not perfect, I just say to myself, you know, it could be better. So if we if we stay in that selfie mode, all that's going to happen, I think, ultimately, is is we're going to become looking for more and more and more of this kind of empty superficial meaning which is ultimately just going to leave us kind of lonely and unfulfilled. Whereas if we can get beyond the selfie and have honest conversations with people and honest conversations about ourselves and change and grow and kind of take on the burden of, of becoming more than we are now, then we just have this wonderful opportunity of growth. And, you know, in my life, I've just had the, 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 the sort of like wonderful opportunity to, to meet people who are really wise. Talking with you, I can already tell you have a lot of wisdom. And there are other people, you know, who you meet in your life who are just very wise and you know that they're wise because they're at peace with themselves. And I think that sense of being at peace with yourself and having that degree of comfort with yourself and not needing to take a photograph of yourself but being happy to take a photograph if somebody wants it. Sure, of course, I'll show a selfie if you want it, but not needing to do it. That sense of inner peace, I think that's the opportunity that we're missing. And that kind of deep wisdom at refinding our place in the world, not just in a passive sense, but in an active sense. And that's the transition from being a child, right? I mean, as a child, you're just passively part of the world, but as a wise person, you're actively part of the world and you can help shape and grow the world so that even as you're interconnected with the world, it's also kind of taking root in you. Do you have any thoughts or guidance on how to open up the reality or or maybe guide a person into their, their own story or their own narrative that they're either subconsciously or perhaps consciously writing. Because I think that that's like, I've heard Jordan. Yes, I think absolutely. I think, yeah, I think I heard Jordan Peterson, like a kind of like a, a bit from him on some podcast talking about, you know, you might be living a tragedy and not realize it, you know, but you can, you have the option to change your life into a comedy or change your life into, you know, a, a tale about a hero or, you know, it's it's really up to you if you're able to actually happen, tap into the, maybe you could say like that subconscious system maybe i don't know like how, do, how does a person start to tap into the the story that they that they are yeah subconsciously or consciously writing for themselves so the the first thing is is just that attitude shift and to be aware like you're saying we can write our own stories we are we are constantly taking our own autonomy and giving it to other people all the time and we do that every time we blame someone or get angry at someone or blame the world or get angry at the world In all those different ways, we're taking our own power, our own agency, and we're giving it to something else. We're saying, that's actually what's causing me to be this way. And instead, when something bad happens to you, take ownership of it. Say, that was my fault. Even if it wasn't your fault, take ownership of it, because that's real power. And anytime you look around and see something in the world that isn't the way that you want it, take ownership of that. I mean, that's ultimately the path towards divinity. To be a god is to take responsibility for everything, to say everything that's broken is my fault. And so the more that you can look at your own life and just say, yes, that's not working, and that's not somebody else's fault, that's my fault, that's the first step in empowering yourself. You wanna wanna seize onto that. Hmm. And the next thing is, is once you've taken that control, start to think to yourself intentionally, what do I want my story to be? My story doesn't have to be anything. 
No one's telling me what my story is. I have an opportunity to tell my story the way that I want to do it. And that's a very frightening moment for a lot of people in the same way that looking like at a blank piece of paper is frightening for people. People can freak out because they're like, oh my goodness, what do I do? I might have writer's block. What you want to do in those moments is you want to think back to your own authentic self. You want to think, who am I? What is kind of my unique nature? And one of the ways that you find that is by thinking back to your childhood and thinking back to moments where you were impulsive, intuitive, where you did things without necessarily thinking too hard about them. And that will start to reveal to you, that's my own personal energy. Those are my impulses. Now, because I was a child, those impulses weren't maybe focused the way that I would focus them now. And, you know, maybe I didn't think about how to kind of organize them, but that's something about me. And as I got older, maybe I got embarrassed about those things, or I allowed other people's thoughts to enter into my head, um, and so I kind of changed. But that kind of deep self is always there. So once you take possession of your life, once you own your life, then starting to say to yourself, you know, what is that core life in me? And then every day just owning it, and not being ashamed or embarrassed, and not worrying when it brings you into conflict with other people, because other people who are wise will know that that conflict is a healthy conflict and not a negative conflict. You can always tell when someone is, is a wise person because when you do something that is different than they expect, they don't take it as a, as a judgment or an indictment on themselves and they don't panic or get afraid. You know, They just say, oh, here's another life. In the same way that when you walk into a forest and you see you know, a bird or a tree or something acting in a way that is different from you. You don't freak out and want to destroy it. You just say, oh, that's just a different life. And so I think that's really the, 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 the first two key steps are just taking control of your story and then having the courage to say, this is my story and I'm going to live it. I feel like that is so much easier said than actually executed because you know, I feel like we maybe like I have so much defense around my stories. You know, and I, I think I see that sometimes with with people or with myself, like I think that the the victim just as to have a specific example, like the victim card, you know, holding the victim story. Um, someone did this to me, you know, as opposed to coming into the place of just like radical acceptance and responsibility, you know, that can can be not that easy to do, you know, and, and, and I think that we subconsciously will defend our stories like way more than our conscious mind would like to believe. Yeah, well, look, if it was easy to do, life wouldn't be such a wonderful challenge. I mean, if we just woke <laughs> up in the morning and it was easy for us all to, to, to you know, to, just to be our full and complete selves, well, you know, what would be the point of being alive? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, one version of life is that the gods were all hanging up in heaven and they were like, you know, it's a little bit boring being perfect. Let's go ahead and erase our memories and go somewhere where we actually have to try and struggle, you know, and get back uh, our, our divinity. And I do think that, that to, to, to wish that life was easier or, or to think, you know, this is really hard, you know, is to kind of miss the, the point that the hardness is what's great about it. Because that means that every day you get to grow and you get to challenge yourself. And I agree with you, it's really hard to, to take responsibility for the stuff around us. And you can see that in any relationship that anybody ever has. I mean, anytime you're in a relationship of any kind, whether it's a family relationship or a romantic relationship or just a friend, if something goes wrong, I mean, your tendency is almost always to blame the other person, you know, or, or you know, to say, oh, they're really 70% at fault and I'm only 30% at fault. But the opportunity of life is to always say, I'm 100% at fault. That was me. And the more you can just get in the habit of doing that every day and saying, what more could I do? And take on that challenge. You'll become stronger and then you'll see people around you taking on that challenge themselves and you can just build an entire community of responsibility in which we're all taking on that burden we're all taking on that challenge because the human the human heart is anti-fragile and what i mean by that is the more the human heart gets punched the more it gets kicked the stronger it can get and we have this myth circulating now which i think is very detrimental that somehow when our emotions get hurt, that makes us weaker. And then we get progressively more and more fragile. And then eventually if we get hurt so much and our feelings get hurt so much, we're all gonna die. And it's the opposite of that. If humans were like that, we never would be at this point on our planet. And you just have to look back to your parents and your parents' parents, your parents' parents' parents. All of them dealt with struggles that, that were worse than ours. And they responded to those struggles by becoming stronger and kinder and more creative and more loving. 
They took the hurt and the harm and they turned it into goodness and joy. And the opportunity ahead of us is to continue that as opposed to telling ourselves this, this myth that somehow, oh my goodness, life is so hard now, I can't take it anymore. When the reality is life is easier now than it's ever been. And that's because of the strength of previous generations. And if we want to make life even easier for the generations after us, we're gonna take on that responsibility ourselves. We're gonna own the problems and we're gonna change them. I'm going to take a moment and share something that has been a game changer for my life and my training that is taking essential amino acids from Keon. You probably know that the human body is mostly water. What you probably do not know is that everything else in your body is about 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. No matter how you like to move, whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk. They've undergone rigorous testing and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle and enhance athletic recovery, you gotta get Keon Aminos. And you can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkeon.com slash align. That is G-E-T-K-I-O-N.com slash align, A-L-I-G-N. That's 20% off on monthly deliveries and 10% off on one-time purchases. Go to getkeon.com slash align. I want to take a moment and share an exclusive offer only to Align podcast listeners. That is a free bottle of Masszymes from Buy Optimizers. Masszymes is a powerful, best-in-class enzyme supplement that improves digestion, reduces gas and bloating, and provides relief from constipation. After you take Masszymes, you may notice that you no longer feel bloated after meals and that your belly feels flatter. And if you have a leaky gut, Masszymes could reduce gut irritation and help you absorb more nutrients. Like I said, this free bundle offer, it is a bundle because they're also including three books, uh, Sick to Superhuman, Ultimate Carnivore Cookbook, and Plant-Based Delights. There are absolutely no strings attached. You get your stuff, you pay for shipping, and uh, that's it, that's all. So you can go over to masszymes.com slash alignfree. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash alignfree to get your exclusive free product bundle. I think you guys are gonna really enjoy this stuff. I really love using Masszymes myself. I have it sitting in my refrigerator now, and I use it quite regularly. I think it's great stuff, and you get it for free. So enjoy that masszymes.com slash align free. Yeah. Having the, 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 your perception of the world, like that really is, it's the foundation of how you gather information, you know, and like having, you know, there's a, a, a fancy term that I, I learned recently called figma morphogenesis, which is the, how plants and trees and such change shape based off of their environmental conditions. And a tree needs to have wind in order actually to have those you know, the hermetic stress to be able to respond and be strong and stable. But I would imagine when the tree is getting winded on, it's probably not like, oh, this is terrible, you know, or it doesn't have the idea of like, oh man, like they, why do you hate me so much? You know, or I'm a loser. (laughs) It just wins, you know? And so it's able to, to uh, be open to that stimulation without the, the filter of bad or good. There's just a bunch of isness and response. That's so beautiful, Aaron, and that's completely what I think is is actually is right. And and I just think as humans, you know, we have kind of developed this meta awareness, which on the one hand is very powerful, but on the other hand also leaves us vulnerable to self pity, you know, because we can look down on ourselves and pity ourselves. And and I and I just think we have to be more like that tree. When we feel the wind, we have to be strengthened by the wind, you know. When we feel our environment, we have to be strengthened by our environment, and we have to not spend so much time worrying about things. I mean, one of the reasons, of course, we spend so much time worrying about things is we've created these artificial environments where there is no wind. And we go inside and we make the temperature exactly what we want the temperature to be. And we, you know, and everything is all perfect and we curate everything. And, and then we start to get afraid that if we leave this space, something terrible is gonna happen to us. Whereas if we just spent more time outside in the push and the throng like nature does, and this is why whenever you go into nature, it's so revivifying because you just feel that, 
that environment pushing you and stressing you, but in a really healthy way and challenging you. And it just makes you stronger in your core. I think what happens with that, and I'm just thinking about this now, uh, if you remove the uh, this organic stressors that would naturally manifest throughout you know, eternity in, in your human experience, if you remove those, it seems like the human has a certain appetite for resistance. And if you outsource all those typical resistances that would just naturally transpire to technology, suddenly that resistance needs to go somewhere. And it, I think it goes to like emotional resistance and it goes to maybe self-sabotage or it goes to just like weird, weird aberrations of the human experience where at some point that, that would have been expended in the, in the form of like building a house and preparing for a storm. I'm just making that up. I don't. Could you, know. you could you write that gospel down and spread it to the world? Because that's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, that epiphany that you just had is just completely right and so true. Is that we evolved to be strong because of this resistance, you know? And then when we take technology and use it to kind of over manicure our life and, re and remove that resistance, then all of a sudden we have nothing to do except kind of make up problems for ourselves. And because they're imaginary problems, they have no solutions. I mean, this is the thing, like when you make up a problem in your head, like paranoia, there can be no answer to it because it's an imaginary problem. So the problem just goes on forever and forever. Whereas when you have a problem like cold, there is an answer to cold because it's a real problem. And you know, one thing I often say to people is if you can't find an answer to your problem, it's probably not a real problem uh, because actual problems, natural problems have natural solutions. And so if you're spending an enormous amount of time trying to figure out how do I solve this problem, it's probably just in your head, which is, you know, the one place that, you know, can never be fixed because it's an imagination. I wonder your thoughts on kind of like high amplitude pattern in interrupts for a person's personal narrative in the form of psychedelics or life-threatening experiences like near-death experiences or maybe some breathwork type thing. Uh, do, you, do you think that there's value in, in that. And the, the analogy that I've heard in relation to psychedelics is kind of like uh, from a neurological perspectives, perspective, we have these neuronal pathways that are kind of like a ski mountain and you develop these, these, these ruts and these moguls and it's certain experiences can almost act as like a fresh, a fresh powder day to open up the opportunity to choose a new path. Do, do you think, what are your thoughts on the, the, the different potentials with that? Well, first of all, um, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on psychedelics, and I should be honest with your audience and say that I've never even had a beer in my entire life. I've like been totally sober for my entire existence. But having said oh, that, wow. there's plenty of evidence that yes, absolutely, psychedelics can help. <laughs> psychedelics can help people reboot, you know. And I don't think we should be afraid of that just because we don't understand exactly how it's operating. And I think the analogy you use is a really beautiful one because I mean, one of the things that happens with anxiety is we just wear these ruts in our brain and we just go over them again and again and again and again. And another way of thinking about this is that the human brain is predisposed to tell itself narratives that fit with its own hopes and fears. So if you ask people what they think is gonna to happen tomorrow, 99% of what they say will either be a hope or a fear. And the reality is, is that almost nothing that happens tomorrow is gonna to be what we guess because our hopes and fears are just completely arbitrary and inside our own head. And what we have to do is we have to get outside of our hopes and fears, out of those kind of tiny subjective biases, you know, to see the big picture. And you know, when I work with special operations or, or, or other, other units that have to remain radically open to the present, one of the things that we work on is actually a kind of shock like you're talking about, which is to say, imagine that you're dead, you've just died. <laughs> you're gone, you know, you're no longer here. You have no hopes, you have no fears. What do you see in the next moment outside of yourself, you know? And, and I think what's the power of breathing exercises and all these kinds of things are they do get you outside of these kinds of emotional loops, which kind of trap you in your own head. And this goes back to what you were earlier saying about resistance is the human brain existed to be always gently pressed. And the moment it gets too caught in these kind of internal circuits is the moment you want to deliver just a little bit of a push so that it can kind of forget those things, re-engage, open itself, and by opening itself, remake itself. And by remaking itself, remake the world. So 100%, again, I want, to, I want to, full disclosure, I have not done any research on psychedelics myself, but there is a literature out there that I would encourage people to look at and, and just in general encourage people to always do new things. Try new things. Go out there, venture, meet new people, go to new places, because that will just naturally kind of disrupt some of the habits in your head.
Yeah. Well, I think that that's, I mean, that's, that's why I include like near death experiences and other, other stuff, you know, and, and I, I feel like that, that death and rebirth, which is inextricably infused into our minds and into our culture based off of, you know, I, I mean, I guess probably any of the Abrahamic religions, I think most religions, especially Christianity, you know, Jesus Christ, there's this, this clear death, rebirth, reincarnation, you know, and that's the experience that many people have with a, a near-death experience or a psychedelic experience. You know, there was this buildup and this fear, you know, and then I thought that I died and then I finally let go. I surrendered. And then on the other side was freedom, at least for a little while. And then life starts happening again. And, you know, I feel like a healthy mind, healthy body, healthy life will, will likely be, um, you know, a whole, a whole variety of, of these deaths and rebirths, you know. Again, I just I can't just say how beautiful I think that is and how much I agree with that. And I think every day just offers the opportunity for a rebirth. Yeah. I mean, every day, every one of our relationships can be reborn. You know, I mean, the 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 real problem we get into is when we get into these cycles of fatalism and pessimism. And again, these are all about giving agency to the world. You know, this can't be changed. This is how it's always going to be. This is all about taking agency out of ourselves. We're saying, no, I can change everything. You know, a change in me can can change the cosmos, which it can. And giving ourselves that opportunity for, for, for constant rebirth, that's the real freedom. That's the real way to kind of escape the trap that we imagine our lives to be and enter into the real opportunity that the world is. Yeah. Or love the trap, you know, be able to look at it from an objective place and say, what a beautiful trap, you know, so as opposed to running the story or the narrative that I need to escape, which is going to probably perpetuate that, that, that story inside yourself. Like, is it possible to come to a place of actually truly compassionately loving the trap, you know, and then from there, my guess is you probably, you know, just organically find release is my guess. That's fabulous. No, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the more you can embrace things that are difficult as gifts, the more you emancipate yourself. Oh, this is the first time that we're ever talking and we kind of like just abruptly started. So there was no time to, you know, whatever, blow smoke up each other's asses or rapport. Bill is just like record. Hello, conversation. podcast. <laughs> so but I'm so grateful for your mind and what you bring to the world. I'd love for people to continue digging into your work or where, where's the best place for people to, to go from here if they want to go deeper into stories, their own story. Yeah, well, I mean, I have a I have a website, which is just AngusFletcher.co, and you can go through all the kind of crazy articles and and books and everything that I've written there, in which I you know talk about all this stuff. And I just have to say, honestly, Aaron, this has been a delight. I did not know what to expect either, because as you said, this is just like a kind of a cold date. We were just kind of thrown in together <laughs> without any knowledge, and I really feel honestly very enlightened by this conversation. And I will carry a number of the things you said with me um, forward with me because I I think that they're fantastic. And you know, I mean, I. I hope, uh, you know, everyone listening to you kind of derives that kind of benefit and has that kind of openness to these these epiphanies. Thank you, man. It's very mutual. All right. You got to run. Thank you all so much for tuning in. That's it. That's all. Over and out. Have you guys devoured that conversation? Hopefully it induced some head scratching, maybe a little bit of whisker wisping and got the gears turning. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share minds such as this one from Dr. Angus Fletcher. If you want to share this conversation, you can on the Instagram, be like the place. You can tag myself at Align Podcast, or you can tag Dr. Fletcher as well. And that is it. And that is all. Thank you for subscribing to this. Thank you for telling your friends. Thank you for implementing the information. I will see you next week.